Welcome to this Diversity and Inclusivity Finance Forum podcast. Working for difference, making business better and fairer. The DIFF series of podcasts is aimed at helping people from underrepresented groups get into and get on in the mortgage and protection industry and to help everyone understand why genuinely prioritizing diversity is good for all of us individually, good for your business and good for the mortgage market as a whole. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the individuals participating and not necessarily of their respective companies either past or present. Welcome everyone to uh, our first DIFF podcast on trailblazers and uh, today uh, we've got two trailblazers for the price of one Um, but uh, we will be focusing on issues around um, race Um, so our first uh, trailblazer uh, is Esther Dextra, Managing Director of Lloyd's Intermediaries uh, and with Halifax uh, Scottish Widows Bank and BM uh, under her belt it does make Esther the most senior female figure in mortgage intermediary lending in this country, possibly in Europe. Um, so, but we're also joined by Richard Goppy, and uh, because I'm enormously lazy, I'm going to let Richard introduce himself. So Richard, what do you do? What are your responsibilities? And uh, talk us through your journey to how you got here. Yes, yeah, so just a little bit personal bit about myself, first of all. Um, I'm married with three children and also four grandchildren live South London, still a keen sportsman at my age. And although COVID has stopped my footballing opportunities since March, and those that know me, I'm a very passionate Chelsea fan. So happy with their progress so far this season. Yeah, I'm Head of Strategic Partnerships for PMS, which is part of the Sesame Bancor Group. Um, I've worked there for 10 years come April 2021, which is indeed a bit of a milestone. Um, my responsibilities are to lead and help drive our relationships with directly authorised firms across all the financial segments. Working with our key account managers and lender and protection relationship teams. And in my role, I lead the PMS Diamond Club, which are some of the most leading and progressive thinking, successful and inspiring brokerages in the country who I'm really proud to work in partnership with. My role will be expanding to also look after our PMS Premier Protect in 2021. And those are going to be some exciting times. So for me, I've been in financial services for four decades, which seems mad. And it's quite ironic that we're having this um, podcast and it's with Esther because the first 20 years of my life, I was with Lloyds Bank. Um, I remember that day well, 30th of June, 1980. Started out as a little 17-year-old lad walking into Kensington High Street branch. Was I nervous? Damn right, I was uh, very nervous. I remember the, the, the actual three-piece flare blue pinstripe suit I wore that day. Um, it was awful. <laughs> but, but that was what I had to wear on that day. And it was it was mad. And I remember who looked after me, phone up was a guy called Peter O'Donovan. And our paths crossed later on in the intermediate market where he was a broker for a while. Um, in my time at um, Lloyd's, I worked at Kensington and High Street branch, um, Regent Street, Old Bond Street, um, and then I got my opportunity to take on as a, as a branch manager at Ballum and then moved on to 
Earl's Court and Chelsea Harbour for a couple of years. And then my final two years were in Dartford in Kent. Um, and that was you know, really out of my, I'd call my comfort zone in a sense that you know, being a black man, um, I worked in Rotterdam, you're the only um, black person, but in particularly at this, in this branch, it was in an area where it was pretty close and pretty strong BNP and NF um, influences. So I, it, was, it was an interesting time as a manager there. Um, I will go into later on, but one of the things that did come up whilst I was there, which was a little bit wild, we should probably say, but yeah, but 20 years there. And then from there, I then moved to Santander, which was Abbey at the time. And I took on the role of head of merchant services, which later became the national sales manager in a payments division, working in the corporate world with retailers and banks, which was really exciting, really enjoyed it. Um, but unfortunately, four years in, Abbey started having financial issues and they made the whole team redundant and moved on really to what they considered to be core business, which was the retail bank and intermediaries. And I then got an opportunity, funnily enough, um, with the intermediaries through Julie Nurse, who was a division director at the time, and she was looking for a regional manager for the South East. And probably reckon I wasn't quite right for the South East role and would have preferred me in London, but it was an opportunity then. So she asked me to do a BDM role, which I did. And that was um, fabulous. Did that for a couple of years. Then I got the opportunity to be a regional manager in London, um, where you had um, control of the BDMs and manage the operations. Did that for four years until the recession. And that dreaded recession um, in 2009, um, Santander switched from a regional model to a what I call national model. And I was out of work for 18 months. And that was tough. You didn't realise how hard it was going to be to find another role in financial services after working nearly 30 years. However, I was lucky in the end after 18 months. Um, I'd spoken with one of my colleagues who was a regional manager, Donna Calloway, and she, her partner was Phil Cartwright, who's the MD of London and Country, and he had been speaking to John Malone because they were looking for a key account manager for PMS. And Phil suggested myself to John, spoke with John, and then had an interview with Lisa Martin, who was the um, operation and sales director at the time, got through the interview, got the job, and my self-esteem was back. I was unbelievably happy and thankful. And I've now been at PMS for 10 years, where I've worked as a key account manager in London and the South East, then as a senior key account manager, promoted in 2018. And finally, when our new MD, Ross Liston, came in, one thing he, he did was he looked at uh, my uh, talents and recognised what he felt I could do and added me to the senior team in 2019 and how I am as a head of strategic partnerships for PMS. Whoosh, well that's good. Um, yeah. <laughs> Esther, does, um, that's quite an unusual um, uh, lifetime in financial services, isn't it? Because Richard doesn't fit the norm in the fact he didn't go to university. Um, do you have any sort of like insight, I mean, from a Lloyd's perspective, do Lloyds actually hire anybody that hasn't got a degree anymore? So, yeah, no, definitely. I think experience can be built up in several ways. And uh, one of the ways is, is of course, by you know, a good start is a good education, but it's not um, the be all and end all. I think in a lot of industries, um, you know, you build up your specialism by experience. And we all know that you can do great things on PowerPoint, but you have to have that real experience. And 
yeah, so that's still what we recruit for as well. I think, though, to be fair, um, in the battle for talent, what you see is, you know, with markets opening up, although who knows what happens is that, and, you know, us not having people don't necessarily now have to recruit uh, close to an office location or uh, wherever they work from, because we've now gone remote, uh, you might see an increase in people being able to attract people with um, a good education. So um, I would say that competition might go up. Okay. Um, so Richard, um, you, you, you went, you, you started off as a 17-year-old, which is uh, interesting in itself, and you, you, you touched on some hairy uh, times, especially in Dartford. Do you want to sort of like tell us a bit about those? Because I think it'd be quite interesting um, to, because I'm, you know, I wouldn't know, but I'm assuming in those days there weren't that many black branch managers. No, there weren't many. I think, and, and funny enough, one of the things that Esther was talking about, I think what I do remember with Lloyds for over the years was that normally, and particularly in their branch networks, there'd be most years, you'd, there'd be an intake for most of the branches, especially in London and, and the West End, of around four people. And then on top of that, you used to normally have one graduate uh, taken in as well on top of that. So you would have people coming in with O-level CSCs and A-levels, and then you'd have your um, graduates, and we used to see that coming in every year, and they were then on that fast scheme. And, and I think for me, I think Dartford was it was interesting. It was a it was an opportunity. I wasn't too keen on moving there originally to actually take on the role, but it was at a time when Lloyds had got together with um, TSB and they'd decided they'd moved down to the model of regulated branch managers. And I had a branch of about 60 people so uh, that I managed. I was the only black person there. But I remember going out of one of my um, financial advisors and it was an evening appointment and I was there to observe him. I remember arriving at the client's door and the client had banked with us for about 40 years. Um, and we knocked on the door and he took one look at me and said, I don't have, and it rides with diggers in my right. house <laughs> and, shut the <laughs> and shut the door in my face. And obviously my colleague, my colleague, um, and that was probably the, definitely the most blatant racism I've faced at that time in the, in the, in the, in the, in the banks. I'd seen things and heard things, um, in the branches and sometimes more covert to be honest with you, but. Yeah, that that was what, a bit what of a year shock. was that, Richard? That was sorry. That was that must have been around. I would suggest it was nineteen eighty nine because I was there eighty seven to eighty nine for two years as the manager at Dartford. So that was in nineteen eighty nine. That was still going on, wow. and, that, and and that area of Dartford wasn't very far from um, uh, where Stephen Lawrence was murdered. To be honest with you, Ooh. so and it it's, it's, it was renowned for things like that in the past. But yeah. Does that shock you, Esther? Unfortunately not. Well, it shocks me, of course, because you would hope that, you know, no human being would be that brutal uh, to say something like that. But, um, yeah, it doesn't shock me as it happens. And I wouldn't be surprised if that still happens. And, and perhaps not so directly, because I'm hopeful that society has moved on a bit. 
but uh, I suspect there still might be, you know, people might still do it more covertly and, you know, try and avoid people either consciously or even unconsciously. Yeah. Do you, I mean, we, we, we've spoken many times, Esther, about uh, you, your, your name. You, we discussed the other day that <laughs> Esther Dextra, I think you were saying if people think you're, if people think you're Polish and lots of people do, they behave towards you differently than when they realize you're Dutch. So Mm -hmm. there's plenty of unconscious and conscious bias and prejudices out there um, over and above racial prejudice, I suppose. And and there is. Do you know sometimes um, when I talk on the phone, people don't never used to realise I was black until they actually met me. Sometimes Gopi, some people actually thought I was Asian because Gopi was very much people saw as an Asian name. And my family's background was from Guyana, which was in South America. And, you know, there is a, there's, you know, there's a great deal of um, black people and Asian people out in Guyana. Okay. Well, so, uh, so, so Richard, you, you, you've, you've touched on a, a couple of things there. Um, so there were hurdles you had to overcome, right? Were there any, uh, any specific hurdles? Uh, you know, I'm trying to get to, do you think you were always fairly treated within the companies that you worked with you know uh, or, or do you think that being a black guy you had to do the do what people normally consider to be the usual thing if you're black or you're a woman you've got to work twice as hard to get to the same place as a sort of you know uh, university educated white male yeah i think you'll find that there's i've worked with universally educated black men and women as well and they struggled just as hard to get the opportunities. So um, I look at it and think to myself, did I face hurdles? Yes, I did. I think I didn't get the same opportunities that were given to some of my other colleagues. So I would be outperforming people and they would still get the opportunity. And that always used to sometimes hurt. Um, I would always have to ask why I wasn't given the same opportunity when my output and quality were better. Um, it always reminds me of what my parents always said to me, you will have to be twice as good to get those opportunities. And it's something. I think the hurdle that a lack of equality was clear that some people's unearned privilege allowed them that free pass to opportunity. Um, and if my opinion sometimes definitely was different and seen as challenging, the narrative was that he has a chip on his shoulder. You know, I mean, what does inspire me now, however, is that I have seen many false dawns, I think, on race in this country. Um, I was born here and bred, but companies have paid lip service to it in the past. But this year appears to be a seminal moment in the search for equality and has changed many people's views. And I've seen it at, at my workplace and you know, I've got real strong backing from our chief executive, Michelle Galunska, and our managing director, Ross Liston, of a PMS and bank hall, and they're very both clear that they want to make a difference. And we are already doing work with Frank Starling of Variety Pack and Dave Thomas to help with our diversity and inclusion um, policy for our company. Uh, Esther, is that the, do you do you do, would you agree with that? Do you think that this year um, everybody seems to be taking the issue of race more seriously? I know Lloyd's are doing great things and, and and you yourself must have 
Uh, there must be plenty of stories that Esther Dextra can tell about being taken as somebody's secretary when actually you're their boss and uh, and that kind of <laughs> thing. But but Lloyd are doing a lot as well, aren't yeah. they? You do, to, 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 you know, for, for yeah, just to, to build up a couple of yeah things, their experiences. I absolutely agree with Richard. I've had the same experience um, in one of the major companies I worked for before even Legal in General, uh, where my peer, uh, you know, and, and privilege, you could call it, uh, uh, ticked all the right boxes, um, was the image of the company and um, got promoted quite easily. And I just asked him, I said, why? And he was, because I fit the profile and you don't, you're a foreign, you're a female, you're a bit, you know, quirky, that doesn't fit with what they're looking for. And that's why any that I recognise you're better than I am at the at the job, but um, you know, and and you just, I I think that recognition just helped me because you get so angry sometimes that you might actually then show some counterproductive behaviour because you're angry about the fact that you've not got that opportunity whilst others have because you know it doesn't feel fair. But then when someone recognises that, that sort of helps a little bit. Um, so, so I think that that's one point to make. Uh, and yes, luckily, things have moved on and are starting to move on. But I do think we still have a long way to go. So the positive is there's a lot of support available now, uh, a lot of great insight, great speakers, great material to help people have the dialogue, because I think that just helps that people talk about it and don't get too scared to talk about it. Because I will be honest, I still find it difficult sometimes to talk about the various subconscious racial things. And I think even, you know, the other day I was like, we were in a team meeting all talking about Christmas, but I know there are some people with different backgrounds who don't celebrate Christmas. And you kind of go, oh, should we call it out now? Should we, you know, name another celebration? You you can kind of get in that quite uncomfortable space. But I think as long as you are brave enough to have the dialogue, then people will appreciate that and you can move things forward and you can, um, you know, yeah, after thinking about it, have a good conversation. That's a great point. Um, one of the things that, you know, we're, we're trying to do at SBG is to have those safe areas for people to talk. I think, you know, there's a lot of people who are on board of it, but there's others who aren't sure. Um, there's others who won't agree with the whole DNI um, experience. But what I believe is that unless we actually take those people on a journey and allow them to have their say, they'll be hidden away and we won't know what the real feelings are. So it's really important that mm -hmm. we, we bring everyone on the journey. That's very true, Richard. Uh, and you, you, you've both sort of said uh, um, things that, that uh, resonate uh, with, with some things that have happened to me. Do you think there are any specific skill sets, you know, for for women for, for underrepresented groups whether they're women brown black yellow um gay do you think there are any skills that um these we, we need to sort of have that help us out apart from more than just a work ethic that is that that, that that's better than our peers and a thick skin for uh when people do and say things that are wholly unfair I think, I think for me, I always try to see positive in most situations. Um, and I do tend to understand that some people don't always know what to say. So I think 
you need to work with them on things like that. So you need to be inclusive. You need to build what I would suggest and how I do things is building deep and meaningful relationships so people feel they can actually talk to you, uh, feel a trustworthiness and include people no matter who they are and what they are. And, you know, I actually talk to some people and they actually say to me, one of the things they, they find about me is that they feel that I'm um, inspirational in 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 thought. That's good. That's brilliant. And and Esther, I mean, you 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 must have developed an enormous amount of personal resilience, um, you know, coming up the way that you have. Um, um, I mean, it must is it must be really irritating knowing that you're the cleverest person in the room and no one asks you your opinion. <laughs> I think for me, what's key, because you asked about the skills, etc. But it's, I think a couple or a long part of my life, I thought, oh, you know, I don't want to be branded the radical feminist. So that's just giving headaches. So, you know, I will normalize the behavior. I will just accept it and step past it. I don't do that anymore. I will call it out. But I've also learned not to be cynical or skiving or, you know, too witty about it, because that doesn't achieve it either. Because like Richard said, you you want to bring the person on board. And um, so you have to almost put yourself a little bit in their shoes as well, and then bring them on to the journey. So I usually try and think through a little bit, and I'm getting faster at that, to, to, say, to connect it to their world, either by asking people, you know, would you like to see your daughter being treated like that? Or would you like someone uh, that says that about your wife or your niece or your cousin, etc. So that quite often helps. Um, and and so to bring people a bit more and realise what they're saying, but also to acknowledge where they come from, because quite often they haven't had those conversations before. They haven't had to talk about it. And that doesn't mean they shouldn't. But acknowledging that and acknowledging it's not always easy. Um, that really helps. But I definitely won't normalise it anymore. No. I mean, it, it, it's an interesting discussion I think I've had with a number of people, uh, is that where we want to get to is is uh, you can be in your position and not pretend not to be what you are. So, you know, uh, Esther, for example, you need to be in your position as a woman not as a woman pretending to be a man or with so-called masculine traits. And similarly, I'm sure, Richard, you, you know, quite a few people I know sort of speak slower and quieter and change their dispositions because, I mean, I, had a, I heard something from David Lammy who says whenever he gets passionate, he's, he's described as being angry. Whenever, whenever Michael Gove gets passionate, no one ever calls him angry uh, and and that's just the way some people look at black people uh, so i do feel that we also need to be able to have people in senior positions that are women and from underrepresented groups who can be themselves um do you think that's important yeah absolutely i've always said that um and and i will call out to my teams who've always kept me on the straight and narrow as well and the minute I started displaying, displaying some of those traits they were immediately uh, quick to call that out um, which is which is very good to have as well um, and I agree you have to be yourself be true to yourself and make sure there is space for that and I'll give one good example um, which is always a sensitive topic salary negotiations so I was sitting down with one of my line managers I won't name 
name here. And he said, yes, but you don't clearly state your intent. You don't, you know, do the metaphorically fist on the table and say, I want to be the CEO of the company, etc. And I said, yes, but why would I do that? That's not me. That's not my personality. And he was like, yes, but then I'm not certain if you want it. So why would I then, you know, progress you? And I said, yes, but you are now forcing me to change myself in order to progress and to get, you know, uh, also a salary increase, which is just not me. That's not me. And um, I said, and I don't think that's the way it should be. I think, you know, it should be a much more rounded debate. So we had a good old debate about that. And uh, we agreed a helpful compromise to say, you know, I said, fine, I will try and be, you know, yeah, putting my fist anymore and, and profiling myself like that. Brilliant. That's just not who I am, no. and I don't want to. Be. And it does uh, Yeah. So, Richard, um, do you coming to you? How do you overcome um, the thing that happens quite often? Is people thinking you only got your job because you're black, and not because you're like a, a reverse of unearned and unearned privilege? Well, it's it's happened as I said to you previously before, and there was that Santander, and I remember getting a role as the National Sales Manager and Head of Merchant Services. It's through a, um, a person I worked with previously at Lloyd's and he wanted me to do a job. And although I didn't have an understanding of that market, I had an understanding of the relationship side of things. And it's really difficult because I actually sometimes have to say to people, if I've got one job because of that, and it wasn't because of that, it's because of my actual skills, there are many jobs that I think I could have actually got previously I've been turned down on because of my colour. And they didn't see my, they saw my colour as a, probably someone who didn't feel fit the role. So they knew you could do a job, but they felt that someone else could do a job better than me. And despite the actual um, output and attainment I'd been doing previously, they felt it wasn't the right thing. And sometimes it was to put you into areas and jobs where they felt was more suited to a black person, shall I say. Right. I, one of the things I remember very clearly um, was starting out at Lloyd's as one of our managers come up to me and make it very clear I wouldn't go any higher than a grade three, possibly four at best. And wow. that was, for me as a young man, just starting on the journey, that, that was difficult. But my aim was always to um, prove them wrong and actually... Um, do better than that and I'm sure and obviously you have done um, and if he ever comes to you for an interview you can remind him of that um, <laughs> so just to wrap up how, how can we move our industry forward in terms of diversity and uh, dealing with racism that, that exists everywhere um, you know what advice Richard could you give to people looking to hire the next Richard Goppy where should they yeah. be looking how should how do they attract you so i think first of all is realizing that all um, diverse workforces give you more opportunities as a company to outperform what you're currently doing now and bring more success and actually do the right thing it will allow you to attract a wider range of uh, talent and secondly workforces will uh, better reflect this so where you normally recruit from as a company ask the recruitment what is their um, policy on diversity and inclusion and how do they ensure they get a diverse range of candidates to interview? Um, look at engaging with different recruitment companies and look at graduate and, and apprentice campaigns as well. Um, 
it's definitely um, black people who go to university. Both my sons went to university. Um, companies need to understand that, that diversity of their workforce actually creates success. I mean, one of the other things I was going to say, what, what I remembered so much more this summer, right, was how quiet the financial services was and definitely quiet over it all. But seeing articles from Dom Scott, in uh, the manager director of Alexander Hall and Rose Sackley of KPMG, that probably made people realise that there was black people in senior positions that they probably hadn't known about. But we also had great allies like I think Andrew Montlake, the MD of Corico, who even came out and said enough is enough. I think one of the key things that we do need is more allies and that is really important. Okay. Um, Esther, I mean, how do you think, I mean, all right, no, the, the, great, the great thing that uh, um, Kamala Harris said is, uh, I'm the first woman in this position, but I won't be the last. So as the person who's probably mm -hmm. got the big, one of the, well, the biggest job in intermediary lending, uh, and I think the first woman to have been in that position, uh, how do you make sure that you're not the last one? That, that, that there are more women in your position, that there's more people from underrepresented groups in senior positions across the lending industry and everything else. What, what, what can you do? What can we do? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I like what Richard said about, you know, it, it's good. It makes business sense. You know, more diverse, more inclusive means uh, it's proven time and time again. It's better for your company commercially. It's better for the people people feel good about it and look at yourself when you get more diverse experiences it just makes for a better life but you also uh, represent your customers you know whoever you are you are representing customers and and they come from all sorts of backgrounds and to have that sort of mix is just a really good uh, thing to do so yeah. that should I mean, say. There, there, there is something interesting I came across um I'm just putting it out there, do you think that something like this is a good idea, is um, Google uh, insist um, that the law firms that represent them, you know, um, when the lawyers come, they want to see a diverse and inclusive set of lawyers. So if, if somebody who wants to represent Google turns up to a meeting and they are all stale, pale and male, Google won't have it. Um, so do, do you think it, we can get to a, a place where corporates, like, you know, maybe even Lloyd's say, right, when you come and you want to sort of like do business with Lloyd's, we'd like to see a team that is more diverse and inclusive? I think that's a real positive and that's something that should be done. Yeah, OK, well, that's good. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and one of the things I think, we have got the blueprint already for success with race and diversity. We've seen it with the gender agenda and the female gender agenda, I say sorry. And what's positive, we've seen females getting on finally and getting the recognition they deserved by actually forcing the issue with KPIs and targeting people to actually give them the opportunity rather than making it difficult for women. And I think, you know, we've seen with McKenzie's where it talks about like the FTSE 100 having to get um, ethnicity on their boards and it's still less than 7%. And you think to yourself, and that's due to be done by the end of 2021. And if we can actually target companies to do that across the country, it would be a, a, a step forward, just one person on the boards. Okay, well, um, thank you very much. Lots of food for thought there. 
And um, for one, uh, I think that both of you uh, show what is possible. And, um, and I'm sure if people want to reach out to you via LinkedIn or via us, they can do for your um, support and thoughts uh, on, on anything from um, underrepresented groups, the, the gender, female gender agenda. Um, but uh, yeah, great to talk to you and uh, great to realise that we are heading in the right direction, although there is still quite a lot of work to do. So thank you very much, Esther. Thank you very much, Richard and uh, hope to see you both soon.